Um, we're going to turn now to um, John's Gospel. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn to John chapter 12. <laughs> um, we've had a couple of weeks break from John's Gospel, um, and we're back um, in this wonderful Gospel, this account, this eyewitness account of Jesus' life. And we're going to read today from John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. So John chapter 12 and verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they'd heard that he'd performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This is um, God's word, and we're going to spend a few minutes now trying to really understand what this means and why it's relevant for us. And we're going to ask that God, by his spirit, would help us. So let's bow our heads and let's pray and ask for God's help. Father... We ask now that you'd help us. We've been dwelling on the things that you have done for us. You're not a God who sits in heaven miles away, but you're the God who comes near to us, the God who helps us, the God who speaks to us and is close to us. And so we pray this afternoon that we would know that as a reality in our lives. Lord, please teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a great scene, isn't it? I mean, what's not to love about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey with crowds of people waving palm branches? It's a a scene that's full of energy and vibrancy and passion and noise. And you can kind of picture it in your mind, this glorious scene. You, You may be quite new to church. If you are new to church, you've missed... Uh, in your childhood, um, many dressing up and acting this scene out times. Because if you were in Sunday school as a child, I am very sure that at some point you were given a paper palm branch to wave, and you waved it. Maybe you even got to be the donkey. I don't know. But it's a classic scene to act out. And it's obviously also a a favorite scene with the gospel writers because it's one of the very few things in the gospels that all four gospel writers tell us about. They all tell us that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. They seem to think it's a significant and important thing. And in many ways, it'd be easy for us to dive straight in and go, yeah, great, great story. Let's talk about Jesus being awesome. Let's talk about the crowds cheering. Let's talk about him being wonderful, and we should all praise him, and we should shout for joy. I just want us to stop before we rush too quickly. 
Here's the question I want us to think about. Why does John include this story in his gospel? You see, each of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they wrote their gospel with a particular message they wanted to teach. And John has a very specific story, an understanding he wants you to know. And so we've got to work out, what is it about this story that fits into John's gospel? Why is it here? And as our key to get into this, as our kind of way into this story, and I hope it will help us to see much more than just some Sunday school kids waving palm branches, I want to start with verse 16. Have a look at verse 16. This is going to be our way in. This is what John adds in when he's told what happened. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. That's an interesting verse, isn't it? For John to slip in at this point tells you several things about this Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey thing. Firstly, it tells you it's not obvious what's going on. The disciples don't understand it at first. They see it happening in front of them. It's not that they don't understand kind of physically what's happening. They don't understand the significance of it because it's not immediately obvious what's happening. And we may say, yes, it is immediately obvious. This is an easy story to understand. Here's Jesus. The crowds love him. He's popular. Everyone's cheering. What's not to understand? John says, no, no, no. There's a meaning and an understanding that's not obvious. So it's not immediately obvious. But this verse also tells us that this is not the moment of glory. You see, that's obvious because John says only after Jesus was glorified did they realize these things, which means that this point is not Jesus being glorified. Now, to all intents and purposes, it looks a lot like Jesus being glorified, right? There's a vast crowd of people cheering for him, shouting that he's the king of Israel. I mean, what what more glory do you want than that? But John says, no, 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 don't get confused. This is not the moment of glory. That's important in John's gospel because John says there is a moment of glory coming. All the way through the first half of the gospel, John has done this kind of, it's, it's like a teaser, like a trailer that he keeps dropping in. So if, you, if you've got a Bible, just flick back to John 2 when Jesus turns water into wine. And, and Jesus, he's at a wedding, they run out of wine. Jesus' mother says, hey, Jesus, why don't you help? And Jesus says in verse 4, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. So John says that Jesus knows that there is an hour coming, there is something coming. You get the similar thing in, um, in John, John chapter 7. 
Jesus says in John chapter 7, verse 8, you go to the festival, I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. So, and you get it several other places. It's not come yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. There's a moment of glory coming. There's an hour coming which is going to be so spectacular and so stunning, and that is going to be the moment of glory. And if we didn't have John's note, we might think this is it. Ah, this is the moment Jesus was talking about when all the crowds are cheering his name. No, this is not the moment of glory. And the reason it's not the moment of glory is because Jesus is not talking about a glory that he will receive from other people. This glorification, this moment of glory that's coming is not going to be public adulation and honor. He's already said, don't worry about turning to it, but back in John chapter 5, listen to this. This is shocking, I think. He says, I do not accept glory from human beings. That's what Jesus says. I have not come to win a popularity contest. I've not come to get the crowds to cheer my name. That is not the aim. I've not come to be famous. I've not come to win approval. I've not come to fight an election. I've not come to gain glory from the crowds. This is not his moment of glory. So... So if he doesn't want glory from the crowds, well, what glory is he talking about? Well, that becomes really clear when you get to John 17. Sorry to jump around, but it's important for us to see it. John 17, verse 1, Jesus looks up to heaven. He prays to his Father, and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Here is the glory. The moment of glory is not when the crowds shout Jesus' name. The moment of glory is when the Father, when God the Father glorifies his Son. You see, the glory that Jesus is seeking is the glory that comes from God. The approval of his heavenly Father. It's a very striking thing, I think, that as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, he's not impressed by the applause. It doesn't thrill him like it would thrill me. It doesn't puff up his ego. It doesn't make him feel good because the glory he seeks and the only glory he cares about is the glory that comes from God. which is really very different to us, right? I think we often find ourselves seeking glory from one another, seeking glory from our work colleagues, seeking glory from our friends, seeking that approval, that applause, that public acclaim. I mean, Jesus has got bucket loads of it here. That's what we crave. We only just want a little bit sometimes, just a thimble full of what Jesus had on that day would do us. Jesus doesn't want any of it. This isn't his moment of glory. So this event, when Jesus rode in Jerusalem, it's not obvious, and it's not his moment of glory. 
And it will only be understood after his glorification has happened. See, look, look down at again what it says. It was only after Jesus was glorified that they realized they'd written the, these things had been written about him and these things had been done to him. Do you see it? So the glorification of Jesus, this true moment of glory, this hour that's coming, that has to happen before you could ever understand Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Which, of course, makes you say, well, what is the moment of glory? What is the hour? What is the moment when the Father glorifies the Son? Well, in John's Gospel, as you read it, it's crystal clear that the moment of glory, the moment, we'll see this next week, uh, two weeks' time, the moment when Jesus is lifted up is the moment when he dies on the cross. Which is really surprising. Because that's not the moment when the crowds are shouting his name. That's not the moment when they're waving palm branches. That's the moment when the crowds are spitting out hate and saying, crucify him. And we'd say, hang on a second, if we're going to paint a picture of Jesus on a donkey with everybody cheering his name and Jesus hanging naked on a cross as people scream for his crucifixion, if you've got to pick one of those as your moment of glory, which one are you choosing? And that's why we could never understand this. Because we will always choose worldly glory. We'll always choose human glory. And yet what was happening at the cross was Jesus was dying to save the world. Jesus was dying to please his Father. Jesus was dying to fulfill the great plan that the Father, Son, and Spirit had in all eternity to save the world. And so Jesus, as he died on the cross, that's his moment of glory. And then as he's raised from the dead and exalted to heaven. And this Jerusalem donkey thing will never make sense without an understanding of that moment of glory. It was only after he was glorified that they understood what happened that day. And so here is this way in, I hope, to this story. And with those things in mind, I now want us to look at what's going on that day. It's not obvious. We're going to need God's help to understand. It's not the moment of glory that comes later. And it will only be understood when we've really got hold of the glory of Jesus. So let's go back right now and work through the details and see what's going on. And first, I want you to see the anticipation of the crowds. So look back to chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They heard he's coming. He's coming. They've been waiting for him. Back at the end of chapter 11, they're saying, where is he? What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? Where is he? I thought Jesus would be here. We want to see Jesus. We want to see Where is he? And you can imagine them all looking around. Who's going to spot Jesus? Who's going to see him coming? And when they hear that he's coming, there's this crackling sense of anticipation. He's coming. He's coming. 
They want to see him. They want to welcome him. And when they hear that he's coming, look what they do. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting Hosanna. There is an anticipation of the arrival of Jesus. And I think John wants us to see that is absolutely right. I've been very challenged this week as I've studied this, and I thought, what's my response to Jesus? When was the last time my heart skipped a beat because I thought, Jesus is near? When was the last time I found my heart racing with an anticipation and a desire and an expectation of Jesus, of being able to gather, say with, on a Sunday as, as a church family, to be able to gather, we say, we can go, we can meet, and we can worship Jesus together. Not many of us bought palm branches this afternoon, which is okay, there's no criticism. But I wonder what we brought in our hearts. I wonder what you're expecting this afternoon. Were you expecting anything? It's easy, isn't it, to kind of just slip into a sort of, oh, well, this is the way we do it, isn't it? This is what we do. This is life. It's just the way it is. Sunday, oh, it's nice. I'll go to church, see some people. You know, I wonder how long John T will preach for this afternoon. You know, those sorts of things. You know, hopefully this will all be over soon. And then we can go on with life. Here is the anticipation of a crowd who who don't yet understand who Jesus truly is. They don't yet understand his glorification, and yet already they want him, and they desire him, and they anticipate him, and they expect him. And oh, that God would create within us something of that sort of an expectation and desire. I think it's an interesting diagnostic question, an interesting, challenging heart question that says, what is it? that you rush out to meet? What is it that you welcome with anticipation and excitement? What is it that you get the palm branches out for? It's Friday. (laughs) It's nearly the weekend. Get out the palm branches. It's nearly Saturday. It's nearly a day to have a line. It's nearly a day to have a rest. This is what I get excited about. I'm anticipating. I'm looking forward to it all week. It's nearly Saturday. It's nearly... Saturday's here. Welcome it with palm branches. What is it that you long for? Oh, that we'd long for this. Have we lost sight of, the, of who he is? <laughs> of that spine-tingling wonder that Jesus, the Son of God, has come near. Oh, that we'd get the palm branches out and welcome him into our hearts. But this anticipation um, then bursts forth in exuberant joy. So as they go out to meet him, they start shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're a joyful crowd. They're shouting. This is what I was talking about at the start. This is why we started the service the way we did. And the words they're shouting are straight from Psalm 118, the psalm we started with. Hosanna literally means, Lord, save us. Save us now. We want you to save. 
And so as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, they see something in him, they see something about him that causes their hearts to begin to cry out in joyful praise. You see, at the time, Jerusalem was under Roman rule. And so the Jews, they were living in their own land, and they had their temple, and they had their religion, and they were able to practice their religion, but Rome ruled over them. They weren't free. Not like back in the day. Oh, not like back in the days of David. Back in the days of King David. Back in the days of Solomon. When Israel, God's people, they were free. They were at peace. There was joy. There was worship. There was a magnificent temple. All that's gone. Now they have to pay taxes to Rome. They live under harsh Roman rule. But they believed that someone was coming who was going to restore their kingdom. And they're beginning to wonder if Jesus might be that one. And so they shout, blessed, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. These are massive things that they're saying. This is the king of Israel. And of course the problem is that Israel already had a king. His name was Herod, right? So this is quite bad news if you're the king of Israel. When they start proclaiming this about some carpenter bloke approaching Jerusalem. Blessed is the king of Israel. Herod's going, oh, hang on a second. I thought I was the king of Israel. But it was patently obvious that Herod was not the true king. Herod wasn't descended from David. Herod was a puppet king that the Romans had put in place. They knew that Herod was never going to set them free. So they anticipated, they longed for the true king. The king who would come from David's line. The king who would be like David and Solomon and those great kings of the past who would set them free. And they say, could it be him? Could it be him? And you say, well, why do they think it's him? Well, because of what he's been doing. If you can feed 5,000 people with a little bit of bread, you can see why people might begin to get excited about you as king. Because kings are supposed to be able to provide. This is a great food program that this king is going to be able to introduce. No one's going to be hungry anymore. And if you've got a king who can raise the dead... That's a good king to have, right? He's literally just raised a man from the dead. So no wonder there's an anticipation about him and an excitement about him. Surely this is the one. There's going to be no more food shortages. There's going to be no more sickness. There's going to be no more death because our king has come. And that's what kings and governments are supposed to do. They're supposed to lead the people so they can live in peace. And they see Jesus and they say, well, surely this is the one. And there's joy. See, here's the deal. They know that the world isn't right. They know where they're living is not right. They're not satisfied with where things are at. They know that God has promised them more. And so they're joyful when they see the one who might be the king. So let me ask you, I wonder whether, do you see that we're living in a world that's not right? 
You see that we're living in a world that's still full of hunger and sickness and death. We're still living in that world. But I wonder if I examine my own heart, I see myself begin to kind of make peace with living in this world. I can make my life fairly comfortable. I can get a fairly, you know, if I, if I can manage to get a job, I could get some food, I can get a fairly nice home. Uh, I, I can live fairly securely. And we can almost begin to settle and we begin to love this world. And we go, this is a great place to be, isn't it? It's nice. And the moment you begin to think that everything's rosy in this world and everything's happy and everything's fine and everything's great in this world, oh, I love this world. You're never going to rejoice in a king who comes to set you free because you go, well, I don't want to be free. I'm happy here. So if we're going to share the joy of that crowd in Jerusalem, we have to see that things are not right. We have to see things are not right out there. We have to see that things are not right in here. Things are not right in my heart. Things are not right in my life. I need a king who will set me free. I desperately need a king. And only when we see our need do we begin to see Jesus as the king that we need. So the crowd get this right, their anticipation is right, and their joyful welcome of Jesus as the king of Israel is right, but they've also got some stuff wrong. Because as they welcome Jesus, they don't fully understand it. And that's why Jesus does what he does next. I mean, verse 14 is just such a... If you didn't know it so well, if you, if, if you didn't know it, it's a very unexpected next verse, isn't it? Here's the crowd shouting his name. Here's the crowd welcoming him as the king of Israel. It says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. <laughs> what an odd thing. Because however much you like, might like donkeys and however much you might give to the Dartmoor donkey sanctuary in order to look after donkeys in their old age, however much you have a passion for donkeys, they're not a royal animal. No one has ever looked impressive sitting on a donkey. No one. Horses, yes. Chariots, absolutely. Donkeys, not so much. And yet Jesus chooses to sit on a donkey. Because he wants this crowd to know that he's not the king they're expecting. And here's the, here's the main thing I want us to remember from today. I think the reason that John includes this, and the reason that this moment of glory is so important that we were talking about earlier, is because the glory of Jesus is not the glory we expect. It's not the glory we would have chosen. It's not the glory we would have planned. And yet Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. And so he sits himself on a donkey. And as Jesus sits on a donkey, he is intentionally and completely lining himself up with a prophecy that was written hundreds of years earlier. A prophecy about a donkey. There's a number of high-profile donkeys in the Bible. This is one of them. One of them spoke back in way back, a donkey that God used to speak. But here's another donkey. 
And this quote is from Zechariah chapter 9. And I think it's worth turning there if you've got a Bible. Uh, It's right towards the end of the Old Testament. It's like the second to last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9. Jesus knows his Bible. And so in this moment, rather than just kind of accepting the praise and waving to the crowds and getting a horse and yah, yah, yah. Instead, look what he does. He chooses a donkey because he knows Zechariah 9. Let me read this to you. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Just keep your finger in there a second if you've got it. Here is the prophecy, right? The, the prophecy was, he's coming, a king is coming, the king is coming, and this king is going to be the one who puts all things right. This king is going to be the one who restores all things. This king is the one, this is the one they're expecting. And then you're told he's going to be righteous and victorious and lowly and gentle, and he's going to ride a donkey. So different to the kings of this world who are high and puffed up, who are all about power, who just want to dominate and control, who want to establish themselves, who want to show their dominance and their strength. Jesus says, now I'm lowly and gentle. And that's why he rode a donkey. And of course, that's why it made no sense to the disciples. Why are you on a donkey, Jesus? It only makes sense when you've seen this king on a donkey ends up as a king on a cross. And if it was weird to see a king sitting on a donkey, it's even more weird to see a king hanging on a cross. What are you doing on a donkey, Jesus? What are you doing on a cross, Jesus? I'm being the lowly and gentle king who gives my life to save my people. You see, what the crowds thought they needed was someone who would come in and destroy the Roman Empire. What they actually needed was a king who would come and die for their sin. That's why Jesus rode a donkey. I've not come to be the mighty military ruler who will defeat all your physical enemies. I've come to be the mighty spiritual king who will defeat your sin and death itself. See, your king comes. And I think it's very interesting that when John quotes Zechariah 9, I don't know if you noticed this, in Zechariah 9 it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. But in John 12 it says, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Because this coming king is the one who will cause you to rejoice greatly, but also is the one who will take away your fear. Because one of the things that marks us out as human beings is that we so often become afraid. We so often become paralyzed by our own inadequacies, our own weaknesses, our own failure. We become afraid of this world around us and of the sin and the sickness and death that we see around us. And Jesus comes and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Rejoice greatly. Don't be afraid. Your king is coming. And I've got to say to you, when you find a king who is gentle and lowly, that's a king worth trusting. 
When you find a king who's willing to go and sit on a donkey for you, when you find a king who's, worth hang, who's willing to hang on a cross for you, that's a king worth trusting. And here is why the disciples did not understand it till they'd seen him on the cross. Because this is true glory. This is true glory. And when John wants us to see the glory of Jesus, he's not so much thinking about how spectacular and wow Jesus is. He's thinking about how lowly and how gentle Jesus is. That's his glory. And then you get this last paragraph. As we've seen, we've seen the rightness of their anticipation. We've seen the rightness of their joyful exuberance. We've then seen this challenge. That he, but he's a lowly, gentle king. And that's because this last paragraph... Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and had raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they'd heard that he'd performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him because this is the king who's the king of the whole world. This is what the crowd didn't understand. This is what Jesus' disciples didn't understand until he was lifted up on a cross. Because Jesus did not come to simply restore one nation. He came to save the whole world. See, the whole world has gone after him. And again, John is using this kind of irony in his language. As the the opponents are going, look, the whole world's going after him. And John says, yes, that's the point. The whole world's supposed to go after him because he's the savior of the whole world. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you're from, it doesn't matter what background you have, it doesn't matter what you've done, the whole world goes after Jesus. And that means you, if you live in this world, which I'm assuming you do, well, here is the great message of John's gospel. This glorious king who we should anticipate and celebrate with joy, who is gentle and lowly to sit on a cross, to, to sit on a donkey, to hang on a cross. This is the king who came so that you could go after him. The whole world is going after him. And that's John's big point. The glory of Jesus, it's not what you'd expect, and it's better than you'd expect. You see, the trouble is, if you go after any other glory, if you go after any other human being, if you go after any other thing that you think you'll get your palm branches out and you'll wave for, if you go after any other thing, it will not last and it will let you down. But when you go after this king, this eternal Son of God, you find the one who is gentle and lowly. So how are you doing this afternoon? How's your joy? How's your excitement about Jesus? I'm not talking about a kind of frothy, you know, kind of superficial excitement. I'm not talking about whether you shout and cheer and raise your hands when you sing. I'm I'm not talking about any of that stuff. I'm talking about a heart joy. How's your heart? Because John wants you to see Jesus in such a way that would make your heart sing and make your heart rejoice.
And I plead with you and I plead with myself. And I was, pray- you know, I was praying this for myself this morning. I woke up this morning. I sat down to pray as I do every Sunday morning. And my heart was so cold this morning. I found it so hard to pray. I found it so hard to desire him. And my guess is that's loads of us here. And my plea to you is, don't shrug your shoulders and settle there. This king is spectacular. This king is gentle and lowly. And I want to encourage you to ask God again to stir up within you this joy that we'd get the palm branches out for this king and that we'd wave them at him. Will you welcome him? Welcome him into your heart. In Zechariah 9, I'm just going to finish with this. In Zechariah 9, two verses later, um, well, let me read on from verse 10. This is what this righteous king is going to do. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. What an extraordinary verse. The king's coming. See, he's coming. He's gentle and lowly. He's going to bring peace to the whole world. And as for you, I'll establish my, the blood of my covenant. Because the way this king is going to save his people is by his blood being shed. And we're going to celebrate that together this afternoon. We're going to eat bread and drink wine together in order to celebrate the blood of this covenant that God has made with us. So this afternoon, let's hear those words of Zechariah 9. Let's hear the challenge again. Do not be afraid. See your king is coming. Do not be afraid. See your king is coming. Do you see him? Do you see him? Heavenly Father, please give us eyes to see our king. Please give us eyes to see. Help us to recognize him, our gentle, lowly king. Lord, forgive us when we wave our palm branches at all sorts of other things, where our excitement, our anticipation is for all sorts of other things. We pray that we would be captivated by this king, this gentle, lowly king. Father, we thank you for his great moment of glory. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for that resurrection. Thank you for this king who comes to us. And we ask that we'd celebrate him this afternoon in Jesus' name. Amen.